15, verses 1 through to 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Well, good morning. Good to be back again. Um, sorry, oh, is that right? Loud enough? Good. Um, sorry I haven't brought my wife. You must think she doesn't want to come up here at all um yeah uh, she does she does but she it's her sister's 40th this weekend so she's she's escaped she's got another perfect excuse uh not to be here um but i'm happy to be here and to be able to share uh just this little part of uh god's word with you and um yeah i pray it's uh, an encouragement and um a challenge to you let's let's pray uh father we thank you for uh your word that yeah every part of it uh, is useful uh, for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, uh, for training in righteousness. Um, but Father, we thank you that as we read your word, uh, we often discover that um, you are the one who's been uh, looking for us and searching us, Lord. And Father, please be amongst us this morning, uh, searching us by your spirit. Amen. Well, I remember a few years ago being invited to uh, a, a pretty massive wedding uh, up in Sydney, back in Sydney, down in Sydney. What are you saying? Uh, what are you saying up here? Down, back, down, down. There we go. Because I think we're lower, aren't we? Like, so I think I always think you know Sydney's technically probably higher above sea. Anyway, I don't know. Uh, that's how I think. Uh, anyway, I, at St Andrew's uh, Cathedral, about 400 people at this wedding, uh, massive uh, wedding. And um, I was enjoying the wedding right up to the point where I made a bit of a mistake. And I wonder if you've made this mistake. Um, um, I was chatting with one of my good friends uh, at the wedding. And, you know, I was getting to that point in the conversation where we're thinking, maybe we should take off and go to the reception. And I, and I said, you know, look, well, we better go and um, I'll, I'll catch you there at the reception. And I could knew at that moment I'd made a mistake. Um, I could see the pain and the embarrassment in their eyes. Oh, we, we weren't invited. And I went, oh dear, I felt terrible. I felt terrible because these people were much closer to the couple than I was. And then that got me worried because the more I thought about it, I started to realise that the only reason I was going to the reception was because of Liz. Um, if it wasn't because of Liz, I don't think I would have been invited. So there I was wondering, am I really welcome at this after party? And um, that's pretty much what been the story of my life, really. Uh, I think um, um, I, I'm pretty sure I'm just a gateway drug to Liz. Um, so yeah, you'll meet her one day, maybe. Um, but anyway, um, I wonder if you've ever had an experience like that where it's, it's weird. You've been invited. You're actually at the party. You're at the wedding, um, but you're not sure if you're actually welcome there. Uh, you're not sure if you're actually wanted there. Um, 
But it's not just a question that we might have with people. It's also a question we can have with God. Will he welcome me? Will I be welcome to him if I, if I do turn back to him in repentance? If I do make him number one in my life again? You see, uh, some of you might be pretty confident. Um, I don't know you all that well. Um, of course, as God's going to work me back, he's got low standards these days. Um, uh, he's forgiving. Um, doesn't really expect that much from anyone these days. He's just got to, I mean, it's, it's rough times. You've got to take what you can get. Um, but others might be thinking, look, there's no way he would welcome me. His standards are way too high. Uh, I've blown it. I've blown it over and over. There's no way that I could possibly come back, possibly be forgiven, and also be welcomed. I think sometimes, I don't know about you, I, I often think, you know, God could forgive me, but it's like he's just got to do it. He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't really want me there. And so who's right? Has God just lowered the bars these days? Or is the situation hopeless? Will God welcome me back? Well, if you've got um, the, the Bible there, um, it'd be helpful. But if not, you can just take my word for it or look at it later. Um, if you've got a Bible there, in the, in the previous chapter of, that, uh, of Luke's Gospel there, in chapter 14, in verse 33, we see that Jesus' demands are high. They are high. It's not an easy thing to follow Jesus. Now, he's not someone who you can just tack onto your life. He has to be number one because he is number one. In verse 33 he says this, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. That sounds pretty costly. Jesus' message to all people is that, is that he is king and there's no part of our lives that he doesn't have a say over. Uh, in verse 26 of the previous chapter, Jesus says uh, he must be more important than your father or mother, your wife and your children, your brothers and your sisters, even your own life. Now that's full on. When you read that, you think, when I've preached on those, those passages before, people have gone, I'm out, you know, my dad's everything. Um, uh, that's a high demand. There's no part of our life that Jesus doesn't demand to be king over. He, he's, there's no part of our life he doesn't know what's best for as well. He knows the best for us. And so you might be thinking, forget that. Who's going to listen to that? Nobody's going to tell me what to do. Who could possibly, possibly listen to Jesus and then also be welcomed by him? Well, in the passage today from verse 1, we see on the back of these high demands, what do we see in verse 1? I think we see some pretty surprising responders Surprising repenters. It looks like no one is going to listen to Jesus in Luke's gospel. It's just, you know, it's a bit of a theme of all the gospels. Everyone's just resisting him, turning him away. But verse 1 tells us, and it shocks us, it says that now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Now that's not what you'd expect if you were writing this story, if you were making it up. You'd expect it to be the Bible college students, the religious types. They'd be the ones who'd be like, you know, I hear what you're saying, Jesus. High demands. I'm, that's me. I'm up for it. I'll be there. But in this verse, we see that it's really, it's quite surprising. It's the tax collectors. These are like the, you know, these are like the used car salesmen. Um, these are the, I had a used car salesman in my last church, so I used to get in trouble saying that. But, um, um, it, it, 
tax collectors. These are these are the these are like the, the you know the, the the dicey people. Not not just um, sinners in the terms of, in the sense that they've broken the law, but they, they these are notorious people. And he says it says that they were all gathering around to hear him. Now, what's interesting is that when it says that, when I read that there, it says that they were gathering around to hear Jesus. Um, it doesn't mean just that they just heard what he had to say. It means that they were beginning to actually treat him like he was their king and their saviour, like he knows what's best for them. They were beginning to repent and believe. Now, that's amazing. You, you would have thought it would be the religious types, but it's people who have blown it completely who are now turning to Jesus. Now, the big question is, is not so much just, well, like, can they be saved, but will they be welcomed? You know, they might get an invite to the wedding like I got, but are they, you know, if it wasn't for Liz, would I actually be there? No. Um, um, will, are these people actually welcomed there? Are they wanted there? A few years ago, I was to, uh, Coach Henry's basketball team, um, very traumatic. Uh, I wouldn't recommend doing any sort of coaching if you're a pastor. You kind of think, you know, I've got enough coaching to do uh, in church. And you know, anyway, it was, it, was, it was crazy. But anyway, I, had, I was generally happy for new kids to join. But when I'd hear that little Johnny had never played before, has never been coached, and suddenly wants to come into like a second, second division uh, team suddenly uh, you can feel yourself using all your powers of, of, um, of uh, goodness and, and just praying, going, God, help me to, help me to welcome this kid because uh, do I really want them there? Well, I won't answer that question. But in verse 2, we see that the religious leaders of the day, they were challenged by what, Jesus, what was happening. It's interesting that they don't turn to Jesus, but they're upset that others are. In verse 2 it says, But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. They're not happy about it. And they're what I've called secondly today, they're the cocky complainers. They're cocky complainers, but before we get too hard on them, maybe they're right. After all, these people have blown it. Everyone knew it. They knew it. But... um. Um, surely God would welcome these types of people. But I wonder whether they're also threatened by these people as well. You know, see, if they've got no intention of following Jesus, but suddenly people who have completely blown it, they're now following Jesus, well, suddenly they've got to think, well, you know, what's my excuse? Why, why am I avoiding him? You know, uh, I found in my life that it's been new followers of Jesus often who have challenged me the most when they've just, they're so excited about Jesus, but then also making big life choices at the time, usually as well. Think, look, that means I've got to cut that out of my life. Um, and I'm challenged, uh, I'm challenged when I meet those people. Um, do I still trust Jesus that way? Am I willing to give up anything to follow him? Does everything, even myself, come second place to Jesus? But instead of repenting, the religious, the Pharisees, they prefer to accuse Jesus of encouraging sin. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Can you hear what they're also saying? They're saying, look, 
your, your welcoming, your grace is actually, you're actually promoting evil. You're encouraging these people. You know, don't, don't show too much love to them because, you know, you're, gonna, you're just going to flame their sins. You're just going to encourage them even more. But maybe, they're right, maybe Jesus is just doing the, God, you know, the nice thing, the nice Christian thing, you know, I've got to welcome you. Um, maybe Jesus is just tolerating these people. Um, but maybe secretly he's kind of upset with his new team members. So are they welcome? Does Jesus, does God generally welcome those who've blown it? Well, the answer is simple and from this story. It's yes, it's a huge yes. It's a massive yes. The, the fact is that in this story, Jesus tells us we see an amazing welcome. Um, I've often thought about it as a, as a search, but I think, it's, I think the, the, the point of this story is to show how welcome these people are. As Jesus explains this little story of the lost sheep in verse 4, he responds to these religious types, to the cocky complainers, and he says this, suppose one of you, which means any one of you would do this. So he's not saying, he's saying, look, this is just what any farmer does or any person would do. Um, the normal human response, no matter who you are, when you lose something is to stop what you're doing and look for it. He says this, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Now, have you seen this dynamic in your life? I see it, I experience it most weeks when I lose a lure. Um, um, but it's like, no, that was my favourite. And it usually was. Um, but when you lose something, suddenly you have this illogical love for it that you never had. We never realised you had. You know, like, I don't lie awake at night dreaming about my car keys. I don't think, I just, man, they're so good. But as soon as you lose them, they become the most important thing in your life, even if you've got a spare set, you know, and it's illogical. You, you know, I've got a really old car. One of my, one of my old cars is really old. Um, and it'd be, I'm sure I could get it cut for 20 bucks, get a new key cut, but no, I, that, not doing that. When you lose something, even if it's just a set of keys, we can see in our lives we have an illogical love for something that really is not the number one love in our life. It's not the most important thing. And can you see this kind of crazy love, this illogical love in verse 4? That Jesus says, it says that doesn't he, doesn't the farmer, the shepherd leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? I don't know if you've ever noticed that in verse 4, but doesn't that seem a bit crazy to you? Like who seriously leaves 99 sheep in the open country to go after one? Why would you put 99 at risk uh, to get one? It doesn't make sense. And a lot of Bible experts, they, they, they kind of explain this like in a literal sense. Like they go, well, he must have put them in a pen first and then he must have gone out. And but whenever you lose something, like when I, if I lose a lure, I don't think about the ones that are on the bank. I don't, you know, you just you, you dive in there, you try and get that fish that's just busted you off. And, and um, anyway, yeah. Uh, it's just, it's, just, it's just an automatic response. You're not thinking about the things you've got. But the point here is that every single one of us has this crazy, this illogical kind of love for lost things 
even unimportant things. And I'm sure you've got your stories you're imagining right now about something. You're probably thinking, I've probably lost your attention. You're thinking about something you've lost that's not that important. Um, but I'm sure you can also remember the excitement and the joy of finding something, even that meaningless set of keys. Well, just imagine how God feels when one of his lost people turns back to him. Just imagine that. He is thrilled. In verses 5 and 7, we see when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. He he can't keep it to himself. He's got to spread the news. He calls his friends and his neighbours together. He says, rejoice with me. I've found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. It doesn't make sense, does it? We've all blown it with God. And yet in these verses we see that whenever one of these lost ones, these ones who've messed up, what had nothing to do with God, when they finally turn back to him, he rejoices. In verse 5, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And in verse 6, he gets everyone to rejoice with me. In verse 7, we're told that in the same way there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sin who repents than over 99 persons who do not need to repent. Now, of course, all of us need to repent. Jesus isn't saying no one, these, there are technically 99 that don't need. These, things, these guys think they are perfect. They don't need to do it. Um, but if you think you've completely blown it and known that, that you'd be, if you think that you'd be the last person that God wants to see in his family, well, can I encourage you to repent? Doesn't this passage, it's not a repent and burn, it's repent, you're welcome, isn't it? That's what's going on here. The other passages might be repent and burn. This one's not. This one is repent, you're welcome. Um, trust, you know, the, the, because God has an unspeakable love, a crazy love you'll discover that he's the one who's actually been tracking you down. That's what we discover, don't we? Uh, You'll discover that God has an illogical, crazy, unconditional love and that he's the one who actually sent his son to die, to pay the price so that you can be fully welcome, not just so that legally, and it is so legally you can be forgiven, the price has been paid, but it's not just that. He wants you as well. He's the one who has done what it takes to bring you in the party and he wants you at that party. And so can I encourage you to turn to him with full assurance that he does more than just offer a, you know, a nice invite. Um, I've got to, I've got, uh, technically I've got to welcome you because I've, I've died for you. You know, he, you know, he's the one who's been searching for you looking for you and will be absolutely stoked when you repent and turn to him as Lord and Saviour. He's not the kind of God, he's not like the old, the old dad, my dad wasn't like this anyway, but you know, he's not tapping his foot going, you know, I knew you'd come crawling back. He's not like that. No, he's stoked, he rejoices, he gets the party started. Nothing makes him more excited to see you return. I wonder what's holding you back from returning. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we thank you for 
this amazing part of your word, uh, prodigal son at the end of this chapter where we see the father's amazing welcome. But I think at the beginning of the chapter, Lord, we we are amazed that we see that you don't wait for us to return, that you are the one who's been looking for us. You are the one who sent your son for us. And uh, Father, I pray that um, that through that, Lord, that you would, uh, through that message, that you would be the one drawing us uh, to him as our Lord and Saviour. Amen.